So, uh, last week we began a new series on the gospel, and we used four words to describe how we're going to go through this four-part series. We broke it up into God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. And we talked a little bit about how our need to understand the gospel in order to proclaim the gospel so that we can do it confidently, to confidently p- proclaim it for ourselves, to ourselves, and then also to others. And we um, talked about this quote from, from Tozer, um, who I think is in one of those books. Uh, the quote's not, but uh, it's one of the additional books that Tozer wrote. He said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important, most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we talked about God last week. Understanding God and who he is is formative in how we view ourselves. Without a proper view of God, we are not able to properly view our own role and function and purpose. And so here's what we simply said last week. God is the creator who has a purpose. God is the creator who has a purpose. It doesn't take long to begin to build this picture of who God is. And we started, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible begins with God in Genesis 1-1 because nothing exists apart from God, apart from his creative work, apart from his sustaining purpose. God is the creator who has a purpose. Last week, we took a look at God. This week, we're going to take a look at man, God, man. Next week will be Christ and then response. As we continue going through this little series on the gospel, I want us to understand that these four concepts are not totally separate. They're not mutually exclusive. They are four parts of a whole. At some parts, and in certain regards, they do stand in stark contrast, right? Man is not God. But in another sense, they flow together. God relates to man. God has created man and given him a purpose on this earth. And so what we're going to focus on today as we look at this idea, this concept of man, is we're going to answer three questions. These three questions are meant to help us understand as humans where we've come from and where we're going. So those three questions are, what is man? What is his purpose? And how have we gotten along in that purpose? What is man? What is his purpose? And how have we gotten along in that purpose? Here's what we'll start to see, to go ahead and give you a little bit of an answer. Man was specially created in the image of God to display God's glory. Man was specially created in the image of God to display God's glory. Turn with me, if you haven't already, back to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll see how the answer begins to form for us there, even as early on as Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to read verses 26 through 28 together, and then we'll come back and talk some more. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was created. And I think that we should go even further than that and say that man was specially created. It wasn't chance and it wasn't the end product of a long line of evolutionary processes and happenstances. Now, I'm not going to say a a whole lot more right now about creation as a general event because we've got other things to talk about, other ground to cover. But let me just throw out a couple thoughts on the idea. One of the classes I took as an undergrad um, at a public university was a class on evolution. It was an upper-level class, so we got into the weeds of a lot of stuff. Right? This was about 15 years ago, and even still then, the professor felt necessary to address the Christians in the room, and he told us it was perfectly acceptable to believe in the entire business of evolution and still be a Christian. Did I believe him? No. Should you believe him? No. And why? I'll just say, because I believe what Moses wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. And I think it is one of the most dangerous places that you can be to believe that man was not specially created by God. But there's also danger in believing that man was specially created. Because just 15 years later, I'm sure the academic world and the world at large is much more hostile to such rudimentary and outdated beliefs. There is less charity, less of a need to cater to the diminishing religious culture. The world is hostile to a belief that we were created. Because if we indeed were created, then it comes with the territory that we have a creator. And if we have a creator, then it ought to be on our radars who that creator is and why we were created. What does the creator expect from us? How then should we live? But we don't want something else or someone else telling us how to live. Now on to my second thought. Here's what I would continue to ask about two major events in the formation of our world as science has discovered it. Could the Big Bang and the Cambrian Explosion simply be two pretty major scientific proofs that sound a lot like what happened in Genesis chapter 1. There was nothing, and then boom, there was everything. There was no plant life, and then boom, all of a sudden there were massive amounts of plant life. There were only a few fossils, and then boom, all these different kinds and forms of animal life. The fossil record just suddenly increases exponentially. Now, do you ever read a good book or watch a good movie? And towards the end, as the conflict is being resolved, you realize that the author had dropped some hints earlier on in the movie or in the book as to what was going to be used to help resolve the conflict. Well, God gave us his word, which is a bit more than a hint. And then he left also evidences in creation. And perhaps those events are simply lights that point to the reality of Genesis chapter 1. What Genesis 1 says is that man was specially created. And what especially distinguishes us 
from just being another animal is that we were created in the image of God. Notice in Genesis 1 that it's almost as if, as you keep reading through, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, and then he created the light, that there be light, and then he created this and created that, and then you kind of have this progression, you have this sort of running up the side of the mountain till you get to the top, the pinnacle, You get to the thinner air of the peak, and what you find is man, the male and the female. And Moses, as he writes this in Genesis 1, has a lot more to say about us than about the rest of creation. And what he writes is, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. A special creation that was more than just the words that had been used before in Genesis 1. It wasn't just let there be man. It was, let us make man in our image. There's a difference happening between how God created man and how he created everything else. It was intentional, and it came with deliberate structure and purpose. We were made in the image of God. And here's something quick that we can just take away from that, because we don't, our purpose is not to delve into all of the things that we could when talking about the image of God. But here's just a quick thing that we can take away from it. The image of God, or what you might hear referred to as the Imago Dei, the image of God, is a concept that expresses our relationship to God and our relationship to creation. It's a concept that expresses our relationship to God and our relationship to creation. And one of the best ways to understand this Imago Dei, this image of God, I think is to look at some additional scripture, because honestly, there's not a whole lot that is mentioned there in Genesis, especially in Genesis 1. But in Psalm chapter 8 is an instance where we get a picture of this. Now, you might recognize this. It's one of the reasons we read Hebrews chapter 2 earlier. Let me read Psalm chapter 8. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord." How majestic is your name in all the earth. God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. It's a similar idea as being a son of a king or an appointed representative, a vice regent, someone who acts in accordance with all the power and authority that has been delegated to him. Now, most of us have experienced what that's like at some point uh, or another in our lives, right? So maybe you were in a class and the teacher had to leave the room for a minute, was called to the office for something, and maybe she put you in charge of the class. Maybe as an older sibling, you were told to take care of your little brother or sister while your parents had to go run an errand or had to step outside of the house for a minute. Maybe you were simply put under your older sister's care or under the care of that goody two-shoes in class who the teacher actually did trust. Right? Some people excel in those moments. 
And some of us utterly fail, whether as leaders or followers, me more so fail as a follower, because I would not be put in charge of a class as a kid. And when it comes to the image of God inside each one of us, all of us have both collectively and individually failed. We took that authority and we abused the power. We sat under that authority and we despised it. Our creator said don't, and we did. He said do, and we didn't. But Jesus did. He lived the perfect life. He was the exact imprint of the image of God. He came as a man, but he was also God through and through. And because of his death and resurrection, by dying to pay the penalty for our sins and rising to offer us his perfect life, we now have the opportunity through faith and repentance to be reconciled back to God by the power of God's grace through faith. We are able to move away from our brokenness toward the perfect image of God, the image of Christ. And if you're here listening to this and have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ alone, I invite you to do that today and come talk to me about what that means. And we'll continue talking more about that in the next two weeks as we continue through this little gospel series. But for now, let's get back to where we were in Genesis and catch up on those questions that we asked as we began to look at this topic of man. What is man? He is a special creation of God made in the image of God. And God didn't make man each of his own kind, like the plants and the animals and such. There is one kind of man, mankind. There is one race, the human race. There are two sexes, male and female. As you read through Genesis 1, and really all of Scripture, but especially in Genesis chapter 1, the words that Moses uses are instructive. When you go back and read the chapter, notice the words and phrases that are used and not used throughout Genesis 1, what is carried over into how God speaks of his creation of humans and what doesn't carry over. God didn't just create them man and woman. He created them male and female. And notice their equality. There is no inferior race. There is no inferior sex. Both male and female together are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They are both given dominion over the fish and the birds and the stuff on the ground. Both the man and woman were given responsibility, authority, to care for and to protect. In Genesis chapter 2, this is explicitly what Moses says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God especially created this garden so that man could commune with God, unfettered, unencumbered, unhindered, uncovered, unashamed, regularly, openly, to walk with God, to talk with him. Man, as God's special creation made in his own image, was given a purpose. And what is that purpose? Man was specially created in the image of God to display God's glory. We were crowned with glory and honor. That's what Psalm 8 says. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. We were crowned with glory and honor. We were given responsibility and authority to display the majesty of God through our work and through our relationships. 
to protect God's creation from lies and harm, to speak truth, to live out the truth, to walk with God and to walk with his creation in harmony and wholeness. God gave us some of his glory in order to display it. There is a majesty and a grandeur about the mountains and the oceans and the birds and the trees and the colors of the world, the colors that we see in the universe. Creation itself declares the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. But even above and beyond that, he created us, men and women, to be the pinnacle of his display of glory. So then, we get to our third question. How have we gotten along in that? Man was specially created in the image of God to display God's glory. How have we managed? Simply put, we could just quote Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were specially created in the image of God to display God's glory, but we have sinned and fallen short of that glory. Originally, we see how this played out in Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then we pick up in chapter 3, and I'm going to read most all of Genesis chapter 3. Follow along if you want to. Starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God went down the line, said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We'll stop reading there. What sin has done to us is it has caused us both spiritual and physical death. That's what God had warned Adam about. Now, we don't see his physical death immediately, but we begin to see decay and destruction and pain and suffering. Sin has caused separation from God, both physically and spiritually. God kicked them out of the garden, away from his presence. You can continue reading there in chapter 3. In Hebrews 2, it talks about how we had, through fear of death, become lifelong slaves to the one who has the power of death, the devil. Spiritual death was our state. Physical death became our destiny. We became slaves. Slaves that serve the prince of this world, that walk following the course of this world. But this world, like us, also was cursed. Adam and Eve did not obey God's word, and they were cursed. You and I did not obey God's commands, and we are cursed. Fundamentally, this is what sin is. Disobedience to God's expressed expectations and a state of being cursed. And it makes no difference whether you have heard God's commands in his word or not. We are all without excuse. For what can be known about God is plain to us, because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are all without excuse. For all who have sinned without the law, Paul continues writing in Romans chapter 2, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. We have all fallen short. Man, woman, boy, girl, African, European, Asian, Australian, Antarctican, South American, North American, Jew, Gentile, Egyptian from 4,000 years ago, German from 1,500 years ago, Mongolian from 1,000 years ago, Southwest Virginian from today. All of us, we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and alcohol and movies and fame and fortune and wealth and prosperity and self-fulfillment and family loyalty and personal advancement and convenience and expediency and comfort and gluttony. And all the other hundred ways that we seek life and liberty apart from God. There's an evangelistic strategy out there called the way of the master. You may have heard about before. It uses the Ten Commandments 
as a starting point in asking people whether or not they have obeyed all the commandments. And this is supposed to help us see particular ways in which we have sinned. One thing I remember about this approach goes something like this. A person is asked whether or not they've stolen before, right? So say, have you ever stolen anything before? And most people would admit yes. I mean, because even little kids tend to steal stuff. So even if you're talking to a kid, typically they're going to say, oh, yeah, you know, I took my sister something or, yeah, I took this from my parents or I took a cookie from the cookie jar when I wasn't supposed to, you know. Most people would admit yes. And then the response to that would be to point out that that makes you a thief. You should no longer just see yourself as someone who stole something once or twice. You are a thief. And now I bring this up now as they do to make the point that sin is not just something you do. It is something you do or don't do, but it's also much deeper than that. Sin has become who we are. We are thieves. Our identity is not as peachy as we are naturally inclined to believe about ourselves. And this is, this is part of our problem now. It is so difficult to see ourselves for who we truly are. We deceive ourselves into thinking we're better or cleaner or deserving. Jeremiah 17.9 is a verse that we really all ought to commit to memory or remember and remember regularly in our lives. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need a new heart, a heart that understands. Ears that hear, eyes that can see the truth. In the Old Testament, we encounter David, King David, the man after God's own heart, as God describes him, says this. David says this about himself in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Before it was even on his own conscience's radar, as a fetus and a baby, he saw himself as being full of sin. He was tainted with it, inclined to it, desirous of it. If that's how David described himself, the man after God's own heart, how should we describe ourselves? And this isn't just about playing the compare and contrast game. Am I better than this person or or worse than that person. It's about recognizing that what's true of him is true about us all. That's part of why it's recorded for us in Scripture. The brokenness of this world and the brokenness in our own lives should speak volumes to us. It should be screaming out to us that we live as cursed people in a cursed world. And if the last two years haven't shown us that even more so than maybe we've experienced in the rest of our life, I don't know what will. That apart from the redemptive work of God, we are doomed to continue living in separation from our Creator. That we are naturally, spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walk. We cannot look inside of ourselves for true peace. 
We cannot look inside of ourselves for an escape from the pain and suffering. We cannot do enough good to overcome the evil within us. And not only that, but we cannot look to others for hope. The blind can't lead the blind. If I'm without hope for myself, how can I offer you hope? How can you offer me hope? We are lost and without hope in a cruel and dying world. But that's not where our story ends. It is part of the story for all of us, but it is only the end of the story for those who reject Christ. Don't let it be the end of your story. And we'll continue with that story next week. Let's pray. God, so many of the truths in your word are difficult. Many of the truths in your word are things that we have heard many times if we've grown up in church or been around your word for for any amount of time. But God, would you help us, would your spirit guide us into truly understanding the cursed state that we were born into, the cursed environment that we live in. Help us to see our natural tendencies towards sin. Help us to understand all of the ways in which we have walked away from your word, walked away from obedience to you, walked away from being delighted in your truth and in walking together with you. Help us to see those things and help us, God. We need your help. Only you can give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear the truth of the matter in each of our own hearts. Help us to recognize the rotten ways that are within us, the sinful ways that have characterized us. God, help us to remove those, purge those things from our hearts. God, we know we meet here together today and every week as Christians, as a people who do have hope in Christ. And so as we have put our hope and our trust in Christ, would you continue to conform us to his image and help us to speak clearly, to boldly proclaim this half of the gospel message that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves. God, would you Would you please help us to understand that and continue to bring out that truth in our own hearts? Then help us to be people who are diligently pursuing the hearts of those around us. Not just to expose all of their wrongdoings and leave it at that, but so that we can then come in beside that with the message of hope in Christ alone. God, give us the awareness to see that 
in ourselves, give us the boldness to proclaim it to ourselves and to others. Even this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.